please stand for today's scripture reading. Um, today's scripture is from the book of Mark, chapter 6, verse 30 through 44. Okay. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure to eat, no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when, he, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is the word of God. Thank you, Sulbi, for reading God's word to us. And thank you all for gathering together today. It's great to see all of you and to worship God together with you. You know, today represents something of a return for us. Because after a few months looking at other parts of the Bible, we are coming back to the Gospel of Mark. We're coming back. And the scene that we come back to today also represents a return. As you may have noticed, this will be read to us. It's the return of the apostles. Because when we were last in the Gospel of Mark, what we saw was that Jesus sent out his 12 disciples to do the same kind of work that he had been doing. He sent them out to preach and to heal. In Mark chapter 6, verse 12, it says, So they went out and they proclaimed the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. But now they had returned. Returned to their teacher. And their teacher welcomed them back. But I think we'll see today that as things played out, the disciples probably felt a little disappointed by the welcome that they received. 
In fact, more than just a little disappointed, they were probably frustrated by the way Jesus seemed to be treating them until they weren't frustrated anymore, until they finally realized what he was doing and why he was doing it. You see, by the end of this scene, they would find themselves satisfied. But it would take a while to get there. Have you ever experienced something like that? If you believe in God, have you ever come to him looking for something, asking for something, uh, a certain kind of help, a certain kind of relief? But the way that God responded or, or, or didn't respond left you disappointed and frustrated. Have you ever felt that way? Like how long am I going to have to wait, Lord? Well, in this passage, Jesus shows us that if we continue to trust him, we will finally be satisfied. If we stick with him, we will be filled by him. We will eventually experience his compassion and his power. So let's see how this plays out for the disciples and let's think about how it can play out for us as well. We'll start by looking at how this scene shows us Jesus' compassion and his power. His compassion and his power. An old teacher named B.B. Warfield wrote a very little book. It's a tiny book. It's called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. That's Mr. Warfield right there. It looks quite contemporary, actually, now that I look at him. He... He worked part-time a, as a barista in uh, Park Slope, I think. I think. I'm not sure. Um, or he led a band or something. I don't know. But he writes in this, he was a teacher and a theologian, and he wrote in this great little book that I would highly recommend to you. He writes that, about how there's one particular emotion that's attributed to Jesus more than any other emotion in all of the Gospels. What do you think that emotion might be? It's, it's the one emotion that's most often, he's most often described as experiencing by the people who knew him best. And that emotion is compassion. It's compassion. It's not joy, although he was the most joyful man who ever lived. It was not sorrow, although he was known as, the Bible tells us, a man of sorrow. But, but the, the core emotion that this man radiated most often, according to those who lived around him and knew him best, was compassion. It was, it was that awareness of people's needs or, or people's distress and a deep emotional desire to alleviate that distress. A, a, a sympathy and a desire to, to help them. That's the one emotion that characterized Jesus more than any other. And it seemed to radiate from him, no matter what circumstance he was in. Even in his dying moments, what do the scriptures tell us? That he looked out at those who were actively murdering him, and compassion poured out. Father, forgive them, for they know not, they don't know what they're doing. If you ask the people who know you best, what emotion would they say most commonly radiates from you? I think I'm going to ask my family this question this afternoon. I'm scared to ask, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I, I encourage you to ask that question too. 
What emotion would they say most commonly radiates from you? Is it, is it joy, perhaps? Is it discouragement? Is it fear? Or, 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 or for some of us, maybe it's anger? It, what is the emotion that, that tends to lurk right there under the surface? It's an emotion that drives you very often, and, and it shows up most often in, in your demeanor. Well, for Jesus, it was compassion. And we can see it through this whole scene. Look, look, at, look at how this happens. The disciples, they came back from this long trip, hard work. But how do we know that they were tired? We know they're tired because Jesus saw that they were tired. And he said in verse 31, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Mark tells us that the disciples showed up wanting to tell Jesus about all the things they had done. I, I imagine them even speaking over each other as they try to report to Jesus what they had been up to. Maybe they were excited. Maybe they were eager to prove themselves to Jesus, to make him proud. But more than, than even their accomplishments, what Jesus cared about more was their well-being. He cared more about how they were doing than what they had done. So he said, come with me. Come with me. Come with me to sit and rest and have a meal. You see how much he cares? Do you, can you see it in, the, in these words? And his compassion, it's even more explicit when we look at the way that he responds to these crowds that show up. Look at verse 33 with me. It says, now many saw them going and recognized them and ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Here they are headed to this desolate place to find some peace, some quiet, some rest. The crowd gets there ahead of them. And when, he, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and, and he had compassion on them. The, 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 the original language communicates the idea that Jesus was moved towards them in compassion. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. Now, these were people who Jesus had already given so much. He had given them his energy, his time. He had focused on them for a long time. He was tired, too. Now, aren't those the kinds of times when our compassion starts to run out? Like, like when we start thinking, how, how much do you want from me exactly? But for Jesus, the compassion kept flowing. Perhaps for many of us, if not all of us, our compassion often feels like it starts to run low the more we use it. Like we've got limited amounts. It's much like our patience, right? Or self-control. I got some of it, but it runs out. What we need to see here is that Jesus has limitless stores of compassion. You see, you see, Jesus, in moments like this, he's not just powering through the day, saying, oh, just be nice a little bit longer, another healing, 
another miracle. Just, just push through, plow through, and eventually they will leave you alone. No, no, the clear impression we get from reading the Gospels is that he is so filled with compassion that it naturally radiated from him, limitlessly. And, and what I'm not saying, and this is important actually for all of us to realize, I'm not saying that for Jesus it was easy to keep serving people, to keep caring, to keep teaching. It wasn't easy. Read, read that little book by B.B. Warfield to, to get a sense of the, the complexity of his human emotions. But what I am saying is that because compassion is so fundamental to him, to who he was, because compassion was a core driving emotion for him, it inevitably, naturally comes out. The way anger might come out for some of us. Some of us might feel like, ah, I've got limitless stores of anger. I can keep getting angrier. Some of us might say, there's no limit to my anxiety. I, you put me in any situation and I'll start feeling it. It doesn't run out. But such is the compassion of Jesus. That needs to shape the way that you and I understand him. It needs to shape the way that we uh, uh, understand how he sees us. Do, do, you, do you know Jesus this way? He is God. He is God. That's a core theme in the gospel of Mark. And so the question is, when I say, do you know and experience Jesus that way as compassionate towards you? I'm really asking, do you view God that way? Do you view God as, as right now, moment to moment, moving toward you, wanting to help, feeling for you? He's committed to help you. He's committed to meet your needs if you will trust him. Look at verse 34 one more time. It says, when, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, they had no one to guide them. That's Old Testament language, by the way. No one to guide them. No one to protect them. These are people who are wounded or in danger of being wounded and had no one to care for them. And so Jesus, as he sees this crowd, and we find out that it ends up being more than 5,000 people, he feels an immediate desire to meet all of their needs. So that's what he does. He starts to shepherd them. He starts to shepherd them. It says he began to teach them many things. Because you see, these are people who had been lied to. They had been lied to by their leaders, by their religious leaders. They had lied to themselves in many ways, and they have gotten themselves confused and drawn astray. They had made such awful decisions. They had hurt themselves, and they had hurt each other. And Jesus looks at them and says, I need to help even though he was on his way somewhere else with the disciples to get some peace and quiet. You see, Jesus never saw anyone as an inconvenience. 
Jesus never saw anyone as an interruption. Jesus never saw anyone as insignificant. And as we think about that, the primary takeaway from that is not, let's get this straight, the primary takeaway is not be more like Jesus, everyone. Don't view people as an inconvenience. Don't view people as an interruption. Be more compassionate. That's not the primary takeaway here. I, now, 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 truly, I could argue for the point, from this passage, I could argue for the point that those of us who know Jesus, if we know Jesus and we have a relationship with this man, then we should increasingly become more compassionate. We should, like him, compassionately desire to know the needs and meet the needs of other people. There's no doubt. And we even see that in the life of the apostles, especially after Jesus dies and he rises from the dead. We see them transformed into very, very compassionate people. And they teach the church to be compassionate people. But that's elsewhere in the Bible. If I had to preach one message, I get to preach one message from this passage, I want us to see the primary takeaway from this passage, which is not be more like Jesus. No, no, no. The primary message here is go to Jesus and trust all of who you are to him. Every need, every source of discouragement and pain, bring it to him and expect help. Allow me to take a moment to speak to anyone here who is hesitant to bring your pain and your needs to Jesus. You're hesitant. Maybe you're scared to, for whatever reason. I try not to do this too often, but let me share something uh, personal. Only because I wonder if uh, some of you might be able to relate to it. For most of my life, I have experienced what I only know how to describe as depression. But even though I experienced this for so much of my life, it's only as a married adult man with kids that I started to talk to people about it. In part, that was probably because I was scared to do it earlier. I was scared that if I told people how I felt, or if I told people what I was prone to think about, at times they, they, they think I was odd. <laughs> They would judge me. Perhaps they would think I was weak. They might say, what's wrong with you, man? What's wrong with you? Which is what I kept asking myself, and I really didn't want to hear from someone else, too. Or they might say, man, you got nothing to complain about. Your life is good. Man up. Get over it. I feared that kind of response from people. Or, or worst of all, they might not even care. They might be so wrapped up in their own distress, their own pain, that they'd ignore mine, and then I would only feel more alone. Nowadays, I wonder if those same kinds of fears might actually keep some of us from bringing our needs to Jesus. Whether your problem is depression or, or anything else, and I really do mean anything, list the top five things that are troubling you in your life and that cause you pain and distress in your life or concern, whatever problem you experience, are you afraid that he won't have compassion for you? 
Are you afraid that if you, if you approach him and ask him for help, that you will either get shamed or you will get blamed? Or worst of all, worst of all, you'll get nothing at all. You need to know that your neediness does not repel Jesus. Your neediness actually draws him. You see, sometimes neediness in others, it, it makes us scared because we, we know that we only have limited bandwidth to be able to care enough. We have limited compassion to even care. Jesus is not faced with those limits. And so your suffering actually draws him to you. Your neediness attracts him. Even, even the suffering that we ourselves have contributed to in our own lives, right? Like even the pain that, that's our own making. We got ourselves into trouble. Our own sin, it does not drive him away. It moves him toward us. The old theologian Richard Sibbs said, misery is a magnet for Christ's mercy. Misery... <laughs> is a magnet for Christ's mercy. He is never indifferent to you. And he never gets tired of caring for you like we do. Now, now let me also speak to anyone, anyone here who, who's been, who has been bringing their needs to Jesus. You've been crying out for help. Whether you're asking him for guidance or you're asking him for rescue, whatever it is you're asking for, you're, you're asking and you're waiting for him to help you and you're getting frustrated with the results <laughs> or the lack of results. I want to encourage you not to stop. Don't give up. Don't give up trusting him. You, well, you know what you need, like I need, is to look at the experience of these disciples Remember what happened to them. They were tired when they got back to Jesus. They say, Jesus has come rest. They say, great. And then all of a sudden, those plans, they, they get sidetracked, seemingly so, when this crowd shows up. Wouldn't you be frustrated by that? At least disappointed. Strangely, Jesus made them wait. It's odd, but he did. Rather than sit and rest with his disciples immediately, what he decided to do was begin to teach this crowd. And this wasn't just a pit stop. <laughs> this took a long time. Verse 35 says, And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go, get, to go into the surrounding countryside and villages by themselves. I imagine them thinking, like, how long will this be? And maybe they're talking amongst themselves, like, should we say something? Should we remind them? He told us about getting some food and rest earlier. Should we interrupt them? Who's going to do it? I could guess which disciple was the one that said, I don't know, though. I don't know. But, but they're thinking, hasn't this been long enough, Jesus? So they, they go to Jesus, and notice they don't say, hey, do you think maybe? No, the way this reads, even in the original language, it reads like a command. They say, this is a desolate place. It's getting late. Send them away to go get some food. 
But Jesus answered them, verse 37, you give them something to eat. Now, now I could imagine, I don't know exactly how they responded, but I would have thought, seriously? You, you told us we were going away with you to rest. And now you're giving us more work to do. And, and where are we going to find anything to give them to eat? And Jesus, and they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And, and that question, we could read it different ways. We could read it literally as they're saying, is that what you want us to do? But if they're asking it literally, they're probably also confused because that doesn't seem realistic. Like, can we really do, like, is that what you're asking of us? Because I don't know how we could get that much money together to feed a group of 5,000 plus people, potentially up to 15,000 people. It might, they may have even been sarcastic. I'm like, yes, yes, Jesus, is that what you'd like us to do? You know how you get when you're hangry and tired. Some of us, that, that dominant uh, impulse is towards sarcasm. <laughs> In any case, they must have thought, you promised us rest, and now you're giving us more work. You're telling us, Jesus, you're telling us to keep serving, to keep waiting. Where is the rest that you promised us? But as Jesus responds to them in this way, in this odd way, it's odd, but it's very Jesus-like too, isn't it? If, if you've heard, if you've read his words very much in the past, it's in character. It's as if he's saying to them, do you, do you trust me, guys? Do you trust me? Because he starts to give them instructions. And, and in spite of the, the initial frustration that, that they exhibit, eventually, with their actions, they say, yes, we do trust you, Lord. We do trust you. We don't understand what you're doing or why, but we'll stick with you. We'll, we'll keep obeying and we'll keep waiting to see how this plays out. So, so you see, Jesus makes them wait much longer than they wanted to, but because they stuck with them, because they kept trusting, because they obeyed him, they got a chance not only to experience the rest that they longed for eventually and the food that they needed. Yeah, they got that eventually too. But more than all that, they also got to witness more. They got to witness and experience his divine power in a way they had never seen before. They got to see his power. Let's read from verse 38. The end of this, this narrative, one more time. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they obeyed, right? And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. We're going to come back to that little detail, the green grass, in just a moment. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. In groups, isn't that interesting? A lot, a lot of scholars look back and they say, it's like he's sitting them down for a feast. Here's your table. You're at table number one. Your group, your party's at table number two. Let's sit down. It's like a, it's like a banquet hall he's creating out on that desolate plain. 
Verse 41 says, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them. And, and they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate, including the disciples, finally. And they were all satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. The word for men, anthropos there, it could mean men specifically, as in male adults, or it could mean people. If it's people, then it's 5,000 people. If it's male adults, then we probably double that for all the women in the, in the, on the scene and maybe even add more for all the children on the scene. So we're looking at 15,000 more? How many people fit in Madison Square Garden? 19,000, 20,000? This might be a group that big. Even if it's half that big, imagine catering an event like that. He feeds them. And to feed, I think we can, we can all relate to this, to feed someone is an act of love, isn't it? To, to make food for someone and to serve them is it's an act of generosity and love. Someone told me that once that in their family, in their culture, they said, you know, my mother never really told me she loved me. She never used that language, I love you. But the language she would use with me is say, oh, have you eaten yet? Have you eaten yet? And he said, I, that to me was like, I knew what she meant. She, she wants to feed me. She's looking out for me. This is love. And we feel loved when we sit down for a meal with someone who's made it for us. But to feed people like this is more than just a show of love. It's a show of divine power, divine power. And here's why I say it's divine. There are only two miracles that Jesus performs that show up in all the Gospels. Two miracles that show up in all four of the Gospels. One of them is the resurrection of Jesus. And the other is this scene. They, they, they hold a kind of top two status amongst all the miracles, which tells us that what Jesus is showing here, us here, is, is central to history. This event is central to human history. It's central to his story. And it's central to the, to the revelation that he is, in fact, God. He, he's telling everyone there. He's not just providing food for He's not just filling everyone up. That would be great. But more than that, he's saying, down the road, as you look back on this event, not just the people there, but for his church throughout history, you're going to look back on this event. And you're going to see something about me. You're going to see that I am Yahweh, the God of Israel. Because way back in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel found themselves in a desolate place, just like this, a wilderness. They, they had, the Lord had brought them out of Egypt. Do you remember this? They're wandering through the wilderness outside Egypt. They're hungry. And Moses announced to them that Yahweh, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, would provide them with bread from heaven. Bread from heaven. And it would be just enough for them every day. Just enough for that day. And that's exactly what the Lord did. Every day, his people were satisfied by it. By just enough for 40 years. Now it's more than 2,000 years later, 
And a leader greater than Moses, a shepherd better than Moses arrives. And, and he doesn't call down bread from heaven. What he does is he himself creates something from almost nothing. He, he takes this, this disappointing, inadequate supply of food. It's not even enough for a whole family. And he creates a feast out of it. And there's so much food, so much food that these famished people, these are first century people who are starving. They eat so much and still leave behind leftovers. Like they left food scattered there. That, that's kind of significant because these are not people like, these aren't people who were used to wasting food. These are people who didn't have full fridges at home, right? Access to uh, Grubhub or whatever. They lived with the reality of hunger. These are people who often went to bed hungry. They, they lived with the reality of potential famine. It could happen. And even these people couldn't eat all the food that was there. And if they're anything like my family, I would think that they're thinking, oh, let's put some, let's put some here, let's put some in the bag, some for the road. They broke out their Tupperware. Are there people in your family who do this? Who maybe it's you, you know, who like bring the Tupperware to the party? I, I knew someone in my family who used to bring a Tupperware container to the party so they could bring food home in it. Maybe they're filling their bags with food for the road home. Why let it go to waste? And still they pick up 12 baskets full of bread and fish. And they were all, even the disciples, satisfied. What a word, satisfied. It means filled, literally. Filled up. Content without needing or wanting anything else. And when you, might, when you read this account, you might even wonder, you know, did the, did the people there even know what Jesus had done? Because if you read through the other parts of Mark, some of you may remember this if you've been around, Jesus does a miracle and it says the people were astonished. They didn't know what to think. People were confused. Their minds were blown. Here he doesn't say that. And so it leads me to wonder, did the people even know what Jesus had done behind the scenes? Maybe or maybe not, but the disciples knew. The disciples got to see it all. They got to see his divine power. This was the Lord, Yahweh, once again satisfying his people in the wilderness, just like he had done 2,000 years ago. In fact, Mark makes the point of saying that, that he sat them down on the green grass. I highlighted that earlier, on the green grass in the middle of this desolate place. Does that language sound familiar? The Lord sat us down on the green grass. Does it sound familiar at all? Psalm 23 is a psalm that any of Jesus' Jewish contemporaries would have known by heart. And Psalm 23 opens with these words, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. You see, Jesus had turned this desolate place into a kind of oasis because he was their divine shepherd. He was the Lord, their shepherd, of, from Psalm 23, because he is the Lord. And that's why we can trust him. We can trust that he'll feed us and he'll lead us, just like the psalm says he will. 
Even in desolate, hard places, hard seasons of life that feel like they're lasting way longer than we expected, the psalmist says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I don't have to fear because you're with me. And because you're my shepherd, because he is our shepherd, he says in verse 6, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I may face trial. I may face frustration and disappointment and pain. But goodness and mercy are following. They're following. They're right behind. They're coming. They're gaining on me. And his mercy and his goodness will catch up. And finally, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That speaks to perfect satisfaction. If you have trusted in Jesus, you are not shepherdless. You are not left to your own resources. And if you've not trusted Jesus yet, he wants you to, he wants to show you what kind of shepherd he is. He's moving toward you. He's aware of your distress. He's aware of your need. He wants to give you rest. I asked before, have you ever waited for something or wanted something, some kind of help from God, and, and you've been frustrated, you've been disappointed by how we responded or how we didn't respond or how long it's taking? This is exactly what the disciples experienced until they were satisfied. So if you find yourself tired and hungry, hungry for change, You've been working and waiting, trying everything you can. You've been asking for what feels like way too long. I want to encourage you, don't give up. Don't give up on Jesus. If you feel like you've been carrying a burden too long, whether it's the burden of a troubled relationship, a failing marriage, the, the specific, let's get specific, the, the the burden of, of, of mental illness, physical ailments, and you're tired, and you're emotionally and physically fatigued, the pressures of caring for an ailing loved one, you're weary, or perhaps you're weary from trying to love and serve someone that means so much to you, but you're not seeing the change, you're not seeing the healing that, that, that you hope to see. You've wanted for so bad. And so perhaps you're saying, where's the rest you promised, Lord? I want to encourage you. I'm preaching to you and I'm preaching to me. Don't lose hope. Don't stop trusting him. The disciples were right there for a brief time. Maybe you feel like my suffering has gone way longer. This is brief. I think that might be intentional. Because as we look at the brevity of how long, they had to wait a day. And maybe we feel like we've had to wait for so long. I think it's helpful for us to look and say, well, well maybe, maybe in hindsight, it'll just feel like a day. Maybe the very brevity of their sufferings reflects the, 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 the brevity of our waiting when viewed from an eternal perspective. Eventually, they felt satisfied. You see, because as they were asking for relief and, and rest, it's as if Jesus was saying to them, I still have more to teach you here. I have to teach these people, these crowds, but you're here too. I'm teaching all, I'm teaching you too. 
I still have more to show you. I want to show you more divine compassion, more divine power. I want you to learn more just for a little bit longer. And so the situation attested them until they felt satisfied. So I want to encourage you to keep trusting him. Keep doing whatever work he's calling you to do, just like they did the work that he called them to do. Whatever that work looks like for you depends on what you're facing in life. Maybe it means for you, means for you keep, keep praying. Keep serving that person, whoever that person is. Keep forgiving. Keep seeking to mend the relationship that's broken. Keep listening. Keep doing the next thing. Whether it's, it's counseling or it's seeking support from this community, whatever it is, keep doing the next thing all in response to the Lord who has promised you rest. And he will not disappoint you. You will be satisfied. You know, if any of the disciples in this scene, if they had said, you know, this is getting to be too much. This is crazy. We've been out here all day. I'm out. I'm done. It's time for plan B. I got I to figure out some way to get myself fed and rested they would have forfeited this feast and they would have forfeited a chance to experience the limitless compassion and the divine power of their good shepherd that awaited them just on the other side. You know, this, um, this scene, this feast, it doesn't just point back to the wilderness and exodus. It doesn't even just point back to the poetry of Psalm 23. It also points ahead to another meal. You know, when the, when the shepherd would one day sit down with his sheep and he would have set a table for them and he would serve them food once again. Here, here in Mark 6, in Mark 6, 41, Jesus, it says he looked up to heaven and, and said a blessing and he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. But you know that just a couple of years later, he'd do something very, very similar in Mark 14, 22, it says, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them. And said, and said, here's the difference, take, this is my body. This is my body. You see, that, that dinner of, of bread and fish with more than 5,000 people, it was a foreshadowing of this dinner, this much more intimate dinner where Jesus would continue to connect the dots for his disciples. You see, the same Lord who satisfied his people with bread from heaven in the wilderness outside Egypt and eventually satisfied his people with bread and fish that day. Now at this intimate meal, and it was just the day before he would die, Jesus would tell them, you haven't seen the half of it yet. My compassion and my power have not been exhausted yet. In essence, what he was telling them is that he was going to die and he was going to rise again. And he had already told them this a few times before, but they, they had trouble understanding it. They had trouble accepting it. So he tells them again at this meal, on the day before he will die, he says, he tells them actually through this meal, not just that he will die, but that in his death and in his resurrection, they would be this good shepherd's ultimate act of compassion and power. In his death and resurrection, his compassion and power would come together like never before to provide for his people everything. Everything we'll ever need. 
full forgiveness, full cleansing, full acceptance. Rest. A satisfaction that lasts forever. So don't lose hope, church. Don't lose hope. Don't stop trusting him. He may make you wait. He has a track record of doing that. But he will not leave you hungry and tired. And if you have not trusted in Jesus yet, I have to ask you, who's your shepherd? Who's looking out for you? Like looking out for you like this. Who has promised to look out for you eternally and can keep that promise? You don't have to be defenseless and aimless and homeless. Come to him and be satisfied. You know, at that cross, one man, one very compassionate, powerful man was punished, crucified. And at the time, his death may have seemed very insignificant. He died there amongst two other guys, and more guys would die the next week and the week after that. Insignificant, kind of insignificant, like those five loaves and those two fish. But in that small offering on the cross, there was enough grace, there was enough forgiveness in life to satisfy the whole world. There's enough forgiveness and grace and life there for each of you. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we want rest and we, we fear it'll never come and we get frustrated. You see us, Lord, in our distress and in our pain. You've promised us rest. When we're wondering where it is, we ask that you would remind us of your compassion, limitless compassion and power towards us. Remind us of what you have already done, your past faithfulness. Remind us of your promises to fulfill to our every need. Help us trust in you. Help us trust in you. Amen.